Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Alhamdulillah. Wassalatu wassalamu ala rasulillah wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa man wala. Welcome everyone to the 34th Safina Society podcast. And uh, if you're listening to this on the release date, it would be January the 15th on a Monday. And if you're a Pittsburgh Steelers fan, it's not a particularly uh, pleasant Monday as your team was just defeated. And you might be surprised that I have a clue about these things, but I do keep up because some of the students, some of the young uh, younger students, those are still in high school. And I try to keep uh, tabs and sort of have a clue of what's going on. Some of these guys are, are always talking about these types of things. One of them in particular is a Steelers fan. So I, I like to just have a clue and have an idea. And uh, it's interesting that you, you need to sort of loop people in and there are degrees in Dawa. And anyone who's out there in Dawa should know that there are degrees in Dawa. Um, one of the degrees, the first degree is just to get uh, the body of young people in the masjid. That's the first degree, just to get their body inside the masjid. And sometimes you need to uh, indulge in some of the hobbies and some of the things that they're in, as long as it's not immoral or inappropriate. And one of the examples of this is that Umar ibn Khattab used to, when he saw that the next generation of Muslims, they weren't quite the same as uh, the Sahaba in their motivation. So he began to incentivize their memorization of Quran. So he established a, a large reward, basically, for the youth of Iraq, probably was Kufa in particular. Kufa was uh, a city that Omar ibn Khattab, he, he, he felt the need that we need to establish a city in Iraq because there were so many soldiers there. So he commissioned Sayyidina Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas and Salman al-Farisi to, to, uh, to find a place. And they found this area. It was a, it, and they chose Kufa because it was the most similar uh, topography as uh, Arabia. In other words, that it was a flat area, it was a hot area. Well, all of Iraq is hot, but there are some areas that were more similar to Arabia than others. And Kufa, from the word flattened, okay, from the word flattened, so it was a flat area. So they established, Sayyidina Omar is the one who established the city of Kufa, and he never had great relations with the people once they got there. They were uh, bothersome to Sayyidina Omar, they bothered Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas, they uh, accused Sa'ad of not praying properly, which is really uh, shocking to know, but they said that Sa'ad doesn't pray properly. And Umar ibn Khattab relieved Sa'ad, not because Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas had done anything wrong, but just to sort of save him the headache that these Kufin people were causing him. And the Kufins uh, many, many times had angered Umar ibn Khattab so much so that Sayyidina Umar said about them, may Allah curse you with the wrath of, or, or tasallat alaykum, which means to uh, give power over you or, or make angry with you, one of the boys of Thaqif, okay? And uh, that ended up being Hajjaj ibn Yusuf. He went and he was beyond tough with the people of Iraq and he used to criticize them and call them Ya Ahl al-Iraq, Ya Ahl al-Nifaq O people of Iraq, people of Nifaq, hypocrisy. And we know that the people of Kufa, what they did in abandoning Sayyidina Hussein. So in the early times, Sayyidina, uh, the city of Kufa had a rough time uh, in the beginning, uh, even though there are many, many Sahaba went there. Now, getting to the point, back to my point, which we were talking about, that the youth of Kufa were not memorizing, they were not enthusiastic about the deen. Sayyidina Ahmad was very uh, concerned by it, so he established a reward. Now, you can imagine now what what I find this so amazing is you think of the time of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and it is just otherworldly. 
you know, the messenger of Allah, revelation is coming, and then they're fighting the enemy, they're completely transforming the world. And then you have the time of Sayyidina Abu Bakr and Sayyidina Umar, and you, you have the Sahaba. But you never think of that there are certain things that occur to us now that began to occur in the time of the Sahaba. So now you have, and just imagine, it's Umar ibn al-Khattab. And, and just you, you would think if he's in the world, everything transforms, right? But yet you have some youth who are disinterested, right? They're born in Islam, okay, it's here, everyone's Muslim, no big deal. They're born in Islam and yet they, they lack that enthusiasm. And it's just like many of you out there are dealing with today. If you're a parent, if you're uh, uh, anyone involved in the mosque, if you're part of any Islamic activity, you deal with young people who are just uninterested and you're trying to do something for them. And this is what Sayyid Omar did and he made this massive award of several, several hundred, I believe, gold coins for whosoever could memorize Surah Al-Baqarah, right? So you realize that at some point, the idea of doing something solely for the sake of Allah is not even yet introduced. And just doing it is the idea. So just getting, and I, and I have a policy, or at the, at, the, at the phase we're in, and I keep saying it to, to our team, just get their bodies into the building. I don't care what they do, as long as they're praying the, the Aisha, and then they could do the rest of the time, they could do whatever they want, all right? And just get their bodies in the building as long, and, and the other thing, a condition I have is the separation of, uh, of the guys and the girls. You don't even want to open that bag. And uh, it's amazing that people think that this is some kind of a backward thing, whereas I think it's a total opposite. It makes total sense. And if you look at any elite societies, there was even recently, an, uh, maybe not so recent, maybe a year ago, a New York Times article on uh, women, the wives of CEOs in Manhattan, the wives of these big shot CEOs, and that they exist in an all women's world, that they've created for themselves this uh, all women's world. And I found this fascinating because here you have the most sophisticated, supposedly, you know, in our world, New York, Manhattan, all these Wall Street wives, and, and this is how they live in a world that the Times article uh, she wrote and she was surprised that it's an all women's world. Right? They interact together, they do everything together, and not only that, that they have even negotiated salaries for their husbands, well, from their husbands, so they live in an entirely uh, uh, gender secluded world. Now, here's a, not secluded might be a, uh, uh, the wrong term, but gender separated world. So I don't even want to open that, that bag, uh, especially inside the masjid, it wouldn't even be appropriate, let alone the other causes and the other issues that can go on with that. But uh, my point was that I was going back to, I never imagined that I would actually be in the situation where, where I'm actually actively trying to have a clue what's going on with uh, that generation. So when I notice some of them are into these things, in particular, one of our young guys is really into the Steelers and uh, Le'Veon Bell and Anthony Brown and these Steelers. And I followed them and I have a clue because I, I love sports to begin with. I never really got into the Steelers, but I looked at them and I seen them season in and season out. And I do believe that there are some people who are just winners and some people who are just not winners. And the Steelers are proved again this year that they, they just uh, seem to figure out a way to lose every single year. All right, and now going back to the Salaf, shifting back to the Salaf, to give an example of somebody who, another great scholar of the Salaf, whose beginning was not 
anything other than just physically being there, right? And you cannot underestimate just physically being in the space. Is uh, a man from the Salaf named Ma'amar ibn Rashid, and you should know about him. Ma'amar ibn Rashid, his student, became one of the first people to write a book on hadith. He was write a, write a book, period, in Islamic scholarship, the Musannaf of Abdul Razak al-Sanani, which was written around the same time of the Muwatta of Imam Malik, and Ma'amar ibn Rashid is his teacher. Right? And Ma'amar ibn Rashid is a man from uh, Iraq, who lost his parents at an early age. He was in the guardianship and the custodianship of another family. And he was told to go out on a, on a little mission. And at the time, it, things were safe, so he got into a caravan, and his job, around the age of 14, was to go down to Medina, join this caravan, go down to Medina, sell the cloth at the marketplace, and come back. That's all his job was. So he did that, and his parent, the guardians that he was with, they gave him a little note, and he would go and stay with a certain family there in Medina. So he stays with this family, and it's a big house, and there are a lot of people there, and he's a stranger. And then, in his own words, he said, the entire family gathered around an old man and started listening. Every night they would listen to this old man. Okay, so the first night passed, second night passed, and, and the third night I decided, why not listen myself? So he started listening to this, uh, what he describes as merely an old man. And who was this old man, quote-unquote? It was Ibn Shihab al-Zuhri, Muhammad ibn Muslim. Okay, Ibn Shihab al-Zuhri. All right, uh, uh, Ibn Shihab is his grandfather and Zuhra is his great-great-great-grandfather, five lineages up. His name is Muhammad bin Muslim and Ibn Shihab al-Zuhri is one of the mo biggest figures of the second generation. Uh, or you could really say the third generation since he didn't take directly from Sahaba, he took from uh, Sa'id ibn Musayyib and he took from that, that generation of elder Tabi'een, he took from them. He took his knowledge from them. And that's uh, uh, Imam al-Zuhri, who was served under five or six Umayyad Khalifas. And again, this is another young man who, his beginning was not with this great intention that I'm going to seek knowledge for the sake of Allah. Uh, Ibn Shahab al-Zuhri, his intention, was he began uh, by simply being around the elder Mashaykh of Medina and absorbing what they had and he was no different from any of the other youth that, that were always sitting in the gathering of the Mashaykh. Then one day, he again was on a journey in trade. Uh, he was around 15 years old and he ended up in Damascus, Syria. He traveled from Medina to Syria to do a trade uh, for, for his family. So he gets there and when he arrived, naturally, the first place that he went to was the mosque in Damascus. And at the time, it was right before Salatul Fajr. So his arrival into the city was right before Salatul Fajr. So he figured, I'll just go to the masjid. He gets to the masjid and he finds there's a pillar. And around this pillar are sitting some men. So he just sits down and they start talking to him. And they discover who he is, that he's from Medina. And they ask him who he knew. And they ask him his nesab. He gave him the lineage. Then he asked, said, who do you know? And who did you sit with? And he said, I sat with so-and-so and so-and-so of the, the great uh, uh, scholars of Medina. And then this happened to be the little halaqa, the little gathering of the hajib of the khalifa. The hajib is the, the first person sort of uh, the, I guess you could say, the chief of staff. He's the one who decides who comes in and who comes out and who talks and he sets the agenda for the Khalifa. So you can say he's the chief of staff. 
And he, at the time, was there was an inheritance question that was in the courts of Damascus that the Khalifa uh, didn't have an answer to and that they didn't have an answer to. So he asked Ibn Shihab, Muhammad bin Muslim, and Ibn Shihab answered it. And he said, this question has come up with our sheikhs, and they said such and such. And he said, look, young man, uh, you pray Fajr, and then you come right back to this post because I will introduce you to someone. So he prays Fajr. He doesn't, this is completely a chance encounter. He doesn't even realize that he's about to meet the Khalifa himself. So he gets, so Ibn Shihab prays Salatul Fajr, he goes back to the pillar and he sees this man and he says, come with me. The man leads him into a room and lo and behold, he is in the room alone with the Khalifa of all the Muslims. And he talks to him and, and, and the, the man uh, again repeats the questions and then he asks him the question. And then he, ans he answers the question and the Khalifa starts answering, asking a few other questions. And then Ibn Shihab, he, start, he starts getting starstruck. He starts getting starstruck. And so right before the meeting is over, Ibn Shihab says to himself, Zuhri says to himself, that he, he narrates the story himself. He said, I thought to myself, I may never be in the presence of the Khalifa again. So he asks him for a job. He says, make me an employee. And the Khalifa gets so upset, he kicks him out. Now the next, the man chases after him, and he says, why did you open your mouth? I will talk on your behalf. And now here you, you notice that the Hajib, the, the, the chief of staff of the Khalifa, he's actually impressed with this young man from Medina, and he sees him as a steel. A young man with, who studied with access to the Mashaykh of Medina, to have him on the staff of the Khalifa would be great, but the, he just ruined it. So he said, listen, don't say anything at all, okay? And uh, a few days later, he, he sees him again at the masjid, and he says, now I'm going to bring you in to see the Khalifa again. I've spoken to him, but don't talk. So he brings him in again, and uh, the Khalifa starts asking him a few questions. And he asks him about inheritance, and he answers. And he asks him about other things, and he answers. And he realized that we do have a young uh, scholar in our presence. He's a young scholar. And he spent so much time with these uh, major, major ulama of Medina. So he announces to him, he informs him, I'm putting you on the payroll. Would you rather serve in Medina or serve here in Damascus? And he said, no, I will serve you with you here in Damascus. So Ibn Shihab al-Zuhri gets selected as one of the Khalifa sheikhs, one of the sheikhs of the Khalifa, to whom the Khalifa goes back to for questions and for fatawa. Uh, and he uh, then serves the next Khalifa and the next one and the next one, the next one. He ends up serving five, or uh, my memory's uh, hazy on whether it's five or six Khalifas. And one of them is Omar ibn Abdul Aziz. And Omar ibn Abdul Aziz uh, tells him or asks him to start documenting the hadith and start to uh, write down, uh, write, make a book of hadith. And he started to, but he never finished. So Az Zuhri, if you want to know the history of hadith, Az Zuhri was the first person to begin to write a book of hadith on the order, uh, the commissioning of Omar ibn Abdul Aziz. Imam Malik. And Abd al-Razak al-Sanani were the second to start writing the book of Hadith. And Imam Malik's book, Al-Muwatta, became the first book that was really the most, uh, most accepted, widely accepted book that was transmitted 
as a book. Hadith was documented in scrolls, in personal scrolls by the Sahaba and by the second generation, the Tabi'een, but it was never in a published book, a book that was meant to be public. So here you have two examples of Ma'mar ibn Rashid, you have the example of Ibn Shihab al-Zuhri, that their beginning was not, was just that their body happened to be in the right place at the right time. And there you have Umar ibn Khattab who would be satisfied if the youth of Kufa would memorize the Qur'an just for the sake of money. And it was a famous statement that many scholars have said, and Ma'mar ibn Rashid is one of them, who said that we, start, we started seeking knowledge for other than the sake of Allah Azza wa Jal, and that knowledge refused and made and forced our intention to be for the sake of Allah. All right, so sometimes the good thing, if you want to do something good, you want youth to do something good, and even yourself to do something good, you just, your first step is just to get your body in the right spot, doing the right things, your heart will follow later. And Allah Azza wa will purify it later uh, if the person uh, is fortunate to have that tawfiq. So again, these ulama who said, we started seeking, طَلَبْنَا الْعِلْمَ لِغَيْرِ فَأَبَ الْعِلْمُ أَنْ يَكُونَ إِلَّا لِلَّهِ right? we, sought, we, we sought knowledge for other than Allah, but knowledge refused to be except for the sake of Allah. So when you're out there dealing with children, dealing with youth, you have to realize that all that's important at the beginning phase is that their body's in the right place at the right time. The second thing is that, that there is a degree of force, uh, coercion that should be used, but a degree where you have to give up. You have to not give up, but let up. Sufyan al-Thawri is a great scholar who uh, says that it is obligatory for a parent to coerce, or not coerce, but to really uh, push their children to learn the fard ayn. All right, they must learn obligations of salah, obligations of tahara, how to make wudu properly. All right, what are the obligations of zakah? They should know some fundamentals in our times as they get into high school that are really, you could say, kalam issues, aqidah issues, dialectical, theological issues, but today I think they're issues of survival, right? And it, uh, I've, I think I've mentioned this before, how it drives me uh, up the wall, and it really makes me more almost sad more than upset that a lot of the Islamic schools are still on uh, who is Abdul Muttalib and who is Abu Talib. Right, in sophomore and senior years, uh, and, and, and instead they should be discussing ev uh, evolution, right? What, what, is, what is the science of it? What is the theology of it? Right? What is acceptable of it? What is not acceptable from it? All right? They should be studying the history of humanism, history of secularism, all right? Uh, and these, uh, they should be studying how do we navigate LGBT-related issues, okay? This is what should be studied from freshman year from freshman year, not senior year, that's only one year, from freshman year, and you start slowly. You don't have to take that issue in particular uh, uh, for freshman, but you have to discuss that eventually, okay? You need to start gearing up to between sophomore, junior, and senior years of high, of, of high schools in these Muslim schools. These are the issues that should be studied, right? And it, from the vantage point of aqidah, from the vantage point of bringing the ayahs and hadith that are relevant to it, and I sent to uh, OnePath, the folks at OnePath uh, uh, in Sydney, the, uh, and I talked about the hadith, which is, I have all talked about it in the, the Jonathan Brown article, uh, supporting the wrong. Supporting, and muhdith, hadith, is the least wrong. Right? It's the least of the wrong. So, these are the types of things that have to be done, and every Muslim household, if you're out there, 
some memorization of Quran should be done a couple times a week, even in the house. And honestly, it's not that difficult. You got Skype options. And with the Skype options out there, you are literally paying pennies, pennies, okay, to people in Pakistan who are waking up at 1 and 2 in the morning to earn U.S. dollars, right, and they'll teach in Quran. And I know so many people who benefited from this, Skype, okay. You have out there, just listening to the recitation is a great way to memorize, okay. So that's what we should be doing. And uh, the con concept and an idea of youth work when it comes to adults, honestly, it's purifying. It will purify an adult and sometimes children and youth are what keep adults on the right track. Because after a while we get bored, right? And this is the, one of the sad parts of the development of uh, a person's ikhlas and their path in the deen. And here I want to I want to break a little bit and talk about this long journey and this long path that we're on because it oftentimes begins really great or really amazing and oftentimes begin at, begins at a moment of hardship. When you're at a moment of hardship and you need something to fill in that hardship and you discover the deen and deen becomes something that fills your, your void. Okay? Oftentimes some calamities occur to a person and deen is something that fills the void. Now, what are the first two pitfalls for a person? The first thing, the two things very easily that will take you off of your path, that will dislodge you, that will take you away, is number one, that you start becoming imbalanced. When you start becoming imbalanced, one of the signs of imbalance is you are no longer happy doing what you're doing in the deen. And so what happens here is that when you started doing the deen, it was, it was so exhilarating. And you didn't realize what's exhilarating is that you were balancing yourself out. Just like someone who walks in a room, I'm, I'm right now, I'm in a warm house, okay? I have a little fireplace going next to me, it's about to die down, okay? Because it's so cold out there, all right? I'm in a warm house. Now you take a person from outside, comes in. He is going to be far more appreciative in the first five minutes of coming into the warm house than someone who's been in the house for a few hours. Right? Common sense. Someone who's thirsty is going to be a lot more appreciative of his first sip than of his tenth sip. Right? So it's the same thing. But the reason of people are satisfied and ex feel exhilarated and feel great about something is not because of the thing itself, but rather because at that moment it's introduced, it's the balancing factor. That you are attaining a balance. I always think about this too. You walk into a house and you smell food on the stove, right? And it smells so good. The aroma of food, right, in the house. You eat dinner, you have your cup of tea, you go upstairs, you change, you come down, it's only 25 minutes have passed, right? But that smell of food now is abhorrent to your nose. The smell of food is something that you wanna open the window, you wanna put light some bahur or something, you want to get rid of it, right? All of a sudden, what happened? You, when you were hungry, the aroma of food was good. Right after your body filled its need of food, now your body doesn't interpret the aroma of food to be good anymore. It, it's an odor at this point that you need to get rid of. Right? But why? Only 30 minutes passed. Likewise, coffee drinkers, right? well, uh, people who, who sell coffee and taste coffee, they never swallow their coffee. They always spit it out. 
And I thought, what, what are you guys doing? And what they told me is that if your body gets enough caffeine and enough of the coffee, it will repel the taste. Your taste buds will start repelling coffee. So in order to actually taste what it tastes like, you have to not drink it. So they drink it, they put it in their mouth, and they spit it out. Right? So likewise, the reason that people got into the Dean and found it so exhilarating was because it was filling a void. So it's the balance that's exhilarating for people. Right? It's not the thing itself. So this is the first thing that they miss is that, and you start going into it and you start becoming un, um, in, imbalanced. And once you're imbalanced, the sign of imbalance is you're no longer happy. Your mind is telling you, this is, should make me happy, right? But in reality, you're no longer happy, all right? And this is something that you have to realize. And one of the uh, Sufyan Thori, his mother sent him off to study uh, Sayyidina Sufyan Thori, who's from one of the Salaf, uh, second uh, generation, sorry, third generation, never met a Sahabi. Sufyan Thori's mother sent him off to study, and then she said, Take, start with just 10 hadiths and go and memorize them. And after you've memorized them, then ask yourself, Have you, have you felt your heart open up? If so, then keep going. And if you felt your heart closed up, then stop. Right? So she's teaching her son not to overdose in deen, not to go so far into something and that you become imbalanced, right? that you become imbalanced. And this is the first thing that shaitan tries to get someone who's just starting to get into matters of deen and looking at articles and listening to classes and studying and traveling to masajid and doing dhikr and doing these things. He wants to push you over the cliff by being imbalanced. Okay? So, that's the first thing. The second thing is which means too much mingling and interacting with people. So the first thing is that when we start doing something, it's all good when uh, there's really no personal interest. There's no agenda. There's no envy. There's nothing like this. But when you start interacting with the same group of people, it's amazing what happens to the ego is that your ego will start to compare itself with those people. And as soon as you start doing that, you ruin your path, you ruin uh, your state, and you ruin your ikhlas. You start looking at how so-and-so is treating. You start saying, wait, hold, hold on, so-and-so is sitting at the front, I need to be at the front. So-and-so is getting all the attention, I need to get all the attention, okay? And you start thinking in those terms, and now, at this point, your whole intention has been skewed and thrown off. And for this reason, many people don't uh, have the courage to do this, but I'm telling you, this is the right thing to do. As soon as you feel that your envy okay, is getting the best of you, you need to take a break, go out of the masjid, get out of the building, and if your jealousy and envy and your discomfort around people and you feel that there's competition now, right, and it's no longer a pure intention, okay, then leave completely. Okay? Seek knowledge elsewhere. Get the benefit elsewhere. And this is why Quran says, Mathna wa furada. Come together in twos and three and, and ones and twos. Why does the Quran say come together in ones and twos? Because at this point, when you're in a small group by yourselves, you're not really going to be uh, uh, there's nothing to show off about. So this showing off and this which means you're interacting with people too much. There's too much friction, right? Too much friction 
in interaction, it, it, a negative reaction is going to happen. Okay, and people start competing with one another, and people start having jealousies, and it starts to become bad. And once that happens, you are better off leaving, all right, and finding your benefit elsewhere, unless it is a fardain, unless it is an uh, obligatory knowledge that you have to seek. You're better off leaving and seeking knowledge elsewhere. Okay, and until you purify your intention, and you can sit in such gatherings and al khadr one of the advice that Al-Khadr gave is to Sayyidina Musa is avoid the big throngs of people where there are a lot of people. Anytime, anytime jealousy and envy of people gets activated in your heart, just move away, right? Move away, do something else, do something different, get out of there because envy and jealousy eats up not only your good deeds, your happiness. Nothing kills happiness more than jealousy and envy. And if you ever get brainwashed and think, well, I got to be here. I got to keep up. I got to make sure I'm here. Everyone's here. I can't be missing out. Fear of missing out, right? Fear of missing out is this like, disease, okay? This is what's going to kill you if you keep doing this and at, this, at the expense of your spiritual health. So this is the great importance of staying away from any environment which inflames jealousy, envy, competition. And this is one of the, the top two things that destroy a person's path. Right off the bat, shaitan's first two pitches. You know, like a pitchers out there, they got their bread and butter, all right? Some pitchers, it's the slider. Some people, it's the pitchers, it's the change up, all right? And you know what's coming and you still can't stop it, all right? So likewise, Iblis, when he comes upon a person and he sends his little minions on people, first two things is he'll get them imbalanced, okay? And, and I've said this many times, students of knowledge, and I was the number one person who was guilty of this, when they start studying, right, if they're not wise and mature, like if they're studying at a young age, and I started at a young age, when they start studying, they become weird, right? They become weird, unless they're mature. They become odd because they're imbalanced. They're, they don't know anything about life. And then later on, after they start working, marrying, having kids, then they become a little bit normal after that, right? And, 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 and that's when you're hopeful about it. But a lot of times, youth, when they start studying and they, uh, they're, they don't, they're not mature in life, they're not balanced, they're not experienced in life, they become these oddballs, right? And I see it, and I, now it's, uh, I used to be the biggest one of them, to be honest with you, and all my old friends uh, could testify to that. Uh, but you go so into something that you become uh, off, you become something different, you become a bit odd, right? And uh, too intense about things. And now when I see young people into that, listen, if someone falls into something, and if you fall into a hole in a path, and then you're on that path, you would be a zalim, you would be an oppressor, you'd be wrong if you don't warn the next person coming to be on that path. And some people say, well, you should be understanding. If you did it yourself, you should be understanding. Yeah, that's true. But the whole point of experience is that the next generation is better, right? That the next people coming up don't fall into the same thing. Then what are we doing? We're just repeating the same cycle, all right? So the next generation coming up, they you should give them a heads up that there's a little uh, pitfall over here. Avoid it because I fell into it. So why should every generation fall into it, all right? So this is the idea. And... When it comes to uh, young people, say Nadi ibn Abi Talib said, youth are insane, uh, 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 it's insanity. And the only uh, cure to this insanity is to get older, right? So I think we'll take a, let's take a break here and we'll be back shortly.
اللهم صل على سيدنا محمد بحر أنوارك ومدن أسرارك ولسان حجتك وعروس مملكتك وإمام حضرتك. You're listening to the Safina Society podcast. Follow us online at safinasociety.org. إن رحمتك وطريق شريعتك المتلذذ بتوحيدك. السلام عليكم. I want to tell you a little bit about Tailspun. Tailspun is a technology and design firm focused on providing cost-effective, timely, and quality software development. We design, architect, and build websites, web applications, mobile applications, and offer a number of business and UX consulting services. Every project and every client for us is a story and an adventure. Our goal isn't to tell you which tech we're great at. Our goal is to understand your business, your problems, and your frustrations. And together with the empowerment of technology, we want to write your digital story. Check us out at www.tailspun.co. So if you're looking for awesome software development, whether it's for a personal website or a company web application, give us a call at 856-258-0791. Or email us at info at tailspun.co. That's info at T-A-L-E-S-P-U-N dot co. Alrighty, we're back and we're talking today about youth and and not just youth, anyone who is just getting themselves into, into anything. You have to start, as Imam Ghazali begins with uh, Bidayatul Hidayah, his, his famous book, Bidayatul Hidayah, The Beginning of Guidance, is you have to start with the body. Al-Ghazali makes the point that you have to start with the outward matters, uh, the body, and then you can move inward. So the first thing is to get your body in the right spot. However, at the same time, the vocabulary, the terminology, the, uh, the discussion points, the things that we bring up should mainly revolve around the heart. Okay, should mainly revolve around the heart. And our relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, if you make it something about with young people, oh, do you believe properly? Belief is a bit abstract, right? If you talk about obedience or something, it's, um, it's a bit tough. Really the wording for all, of, for, for all of us and really the wording of the deen in which you notice in the uh, time of the Prophet sallallahu is that most of their wording most of their discussion, yes, the, uh, the obedience of Allah is mentioned, but you cannot underestimate or hide away, and you have to elevate how much they talked about love. And love is really the driving force. If you look at anyone who is doing anything, and, and uh, particularly anything with, with challenge, challenges in it, love is the main driving force. And ultimately, what is spirituality? It's inner directedness to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that you're in you're inwards, you're in something inside of you is is directed and driving you and pushing you towards Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And with this, I want to share here a segment from uh, Habib Omar and my go-to 
at any time to wake up my heart here are the videos of uh, Habib Omar bin Hafiz, Hafizahullah, who a um, number of people in, in the West have been exposed to for, for quite some time now. And may Allah preserve him from, uh, um, uh, protect him from the fitan that are happening in Yemen. Uh, but let's let's look at what he what he says here, and I'll I'll do a quick translation. So the beginning is he he begins here with the hadith of the Prophet وسلم, that a person is with, okay, with uh, in the afterlife the one that he loves. Okay, so he says here, ma'iyya is to be with, so companionship. So what he's actually saying here is that in the akhirah one of the, the highest points is not necessarily the foods, not necessarily the actions, it's the companionship and the company that you keep. Okay? So he says here that the Ashab uh, al-Hadith and the, the narrators of Hadith, they say it's not only Thawban, the Sahabi uh, in question here, his name is Thawban, is not the only person who who had this desire to be with the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam in uh, the afterlife. He says not only Thawban but a second and third Sahaba. A number of Sahaba are saying that presence in the uh, in paradise is not sufficient if the Messenger sallallahu if they don't have the company of the Messenger sallallahu alaihi wasallam in paradise. He said in a fourth and fifth, and another, in other words, he's saying many Sahaba, and one of them said, Oh, Messenger of Allah, I remember you in my house, I think about you in my house, and I become like someone insane. I remember you in my house, and I become like someone insane. And he said, I don't settle down until I come and look at your face. So he says then, will I see you in, in, in Jannah or not, O Messenger of Allah? And they're saying this because they're saying, look at our deeds. What are our deeds? And look at you, the Messenger of Allah. So where are your deeds? He says, Thawban, uh, the Sahabi, he became thin and his skin became yellow from uh, his his عشق, his love for the Messenger Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. So he said, this issue, he, Prophet ﷺ asked him, Oh, Thoban, you're thin and your skin is yellow. What is the problem? He said, Oh, Messenger of Allah, if I don't enter Jannah, then I won't see you in the Akhirah. If I do enter Jannah, then where is my uh, rank is going to be such at the bottom, and your rank is all the way in the Firdaus, in the, in the highest rank, so I still won't see you in Akhirah. So this is what's made me miserable, O Messenger of Allah. He said, I can't sleep, I can't drink, and I can't eat. 
نزل القرآن ومن يطع الله والرسول فأولئك مع الذين أنعم الله عليهم من النبيين والصديقين والشهداء والصالحين وحسن أولئك رفيقا And he says here that before the Prophet ﷺ could answer him, revelation came down. He says whoever obeys Allah and his messenger is with the Nabiin and the Siddiqeen and the Shuhada and the Hasun Ulaika Rafiqa and those who have are good are, are good companions to keep. And if you note here that when the question was love, then the answer became obedience. That love, true love, is only reflected in action. Okay, and when we say action, that includes Toba. Because uh, all of us, if we're Western Muslims, all of us are in some way, shape, and form desiring a certain, um, uh, desiring a certain ideal of behavior, but in fact, not really reaching it, right? Which is a problem. Uh, and uh, in that case, Tawbah takes the place of, of the ability to do action. But the point is that, he's, uh, that action is the ref uh, what reflects love. All right, so that's our little clip uh, for this uh, for this episode, and I like to connect this to the ulama of the East, and I think we should always be connected to them. I don't like this idea that um, that grew out in the West, at least. I don't know if it grew out in England or in others, but in America, this idea that of independence from the ulama of the East. I mean, I think it's silly. Uh, throughout the Islamic world, the ulama have been interconnected, and their interconnectedness is what benefits them. Sayyidina Jafar al-Sadiq was asked, "What is the uh, the?" Uh, Bennett, what is the sign of a true scholar? He said that the trying to sign of a true scholar is knowledge of between the differences of scholars. So how are you going to know the differences if you're not connected? So it's quite important to, to constantly keep that connection and always to mention the uh, the subject matter of love of the Messenger وسلم, And it's going to come to someone again. We start with the body. So if an individual doesn't really get, okay, how am I supposed to love the messenger? It's not really stirring inside of me. This happens when we do dhikr of Allah, when we do dhikr of the Prophet ﷺ. And dhikrullah is something that you have to start with your body first, and then it seeps into your heart eventually. As Imam Ghazali says, it's something that you swallow the honey, and your heart might not feel it until one day it does. So again, this is the same uh, theme that we keep getting back to this podcast, which is start with the body, all right? Get the body doing the right things, and then eventually the rest of the, um, uh, the aql, the intellect, and the ruh, and the soul, and the nafs, all of that will come in place. But if in order to get the ni'mah from Allah Azza wa Jal, in order to get the blessing, uh, you, you need to log in the hours, you need to put in time. You need to show that you're doing something. So when the Rahmah of Allah comes, and a man used to always tell me this, is when the Rahmah of Allah comes, when the mercy of Allah, when it is, the generosity of Allah comes and descends down onto the earth. And there are some people who do things and some people who don't do things. And there are people who have logged in hours and there are people who haven't logged in hours. Whom do you think Allah Azza, who, whom do you think Allah Azza wa is going to be generous to? Right? Clearly, Allah can give to anyone. We all know that. However, the one who took action, the one who logged in hours and took time is not like the one who didn't log in hours and didn't do, to, uh, to, didn't do anything. Right? They're not the same. And so an individual has to know that uh, this matter is not always about getting the perfect results right away. It's not always about having the feeling in your heart right away. It's not always about stirring and having that nur coming into the heart right away, but rather it's about simply doing it and over time 
Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is fair to his ibad. He rewards. He is not, doesn't leave someone to work uh, and just uh, be taxed, like tired, exhausted, and no reward. He always gives. And so a person's got to give the time into it, whether it be ilm, knowledge, whether another, a brother recently said to me that he, he's good at uh, the liberal arts, he's good at humanities and everything, but he doesn't have knowledge, right? So I said, so seek it. He said, but this seems like so impossible. All these people, they know all these terms. And I said, listen, you just log in the hours. Look, crack the books open, sit in front of the classes, attend the classes, listen to the lectures, read, and time after time, hour after hour, month after month, year after year, give it three, four years, you'll be one of the students of knowledge. You'll be one of them. You'll know the terms. You'll know things, right? It just, it's like a, Allah uses the... Uh, the uh, metaphor of the sibra, the dye, the sibra of Allah Azza wa Jal. Uh, and the dye is, he says, sibrat Allah. A dye is something that slowly comes upon something. Right? It's not like a light switch that comes on and off. <clears throat> All right, so with that, we'll close out this second segment and we'll take a break. Ayatours began with the idea that Hajj should be more than just packages. It should be more than hotels, buffet meals and luxuries. Our intent at Ayyar Tours is to provide you with a Hajj experience that lets you focus on the spirit of the Hajj. We do that with our dual approach. First, we organize pilgrims and small groups paired with a world-renowned traditional scholar to provide an experience like none other. Second, we partner with the best businesses in the industry to make the logistics simple and the whole experience as comfortable as possible. We are confident in our novel approach. Let us serve you in your endeavor to fulfill your religious obligation. www.iyartours.com Alright, listen to this. Pretty funny. Thank you all so much for coming in today. There were just so many amazing commercials at the Super Bowl this year, and we are really looking to step up our game. Yeah, we can't wait to see what you've come up with for Cheetos. Well, it's an honor just to pitch. Yes, thank you for having us. Right, well, whenever you're ready, we will start with the team from Murphy and Kennedy. We open on a little immigrant girl. She's dusty, she's tired, she's come a long way. She looks up and sees a wall. How will she get over it? A boy appears at the top. He throws down a rope. The rope is made from American flags. The girl climbs the rope. She sees her new country for the first time, and she cries. Hard cut. Cheetos. <laughs> I love that. It's important. It's now. It's Cheetos. Yes. All right. A.K. Foster, you're up. Okay. So we open on a bunch of kids in a minivan. They're roughhousing. They're playing around. And their mom's like, hey, what's going on back there? And they're like, just eating Cheetos, Mom. Cut to Cheetos. Huh. Okay. Not really sure what the message of that ad is, but maybe. I think it's like, eat Cheetos. They're good. Yeah, right. Okay, you know what? Let's just hear another pitch from Murphy and Kennedy, maybe. Oh, absolutely. <clears throat> we open on a Mexican person wearing a sombrero. He takes it off. Underneath is a Muslim woman. The Muslim woman takes off her hijab. And underneath is a Jewish person. The Jewish person takes off his yarmulke. Underneath... Is a Cheeto. Hard cut. We are one. Harder cut. Cheetos. God, I love that. You know what? But 
I'm worried that feels more like a Twix commercial. Yeah, I actually saw Excedrin do something very similar. Yeah, okay, you know what? Let's take another pitch from A.K. Foster. Okay. Right, okay. Open on a bunch of friends hanging out. Suddenly, Chester the Cheetah skateboards in and is like, Hey, how about some Cheetos? The kids cheer, cut to Cheetos. I'm so, I just, I so don't recognize the world you're describing. This is so embarrassing, but um, we also had a Chester the Cheetah idea. That, uh, that's okay, go ahead. We open on Chester the Cheetah. He has gauze around his chest where his new breasts are. Chester now identifies as Danielle the Cheetah. One of her Cheetah friends enters the room. She's scared she will be judged. But the friend Cheetah looks at Danielle and she simply says, you're beautiful. Hard cut. Cheetos. Oh my God. I am absolutely starving for a Cheeto right now. Yep. Wait, you like that? Yes, it, it shines a light on transgender issues. Yeah, but it's a cartoon cheetah. It just kind of feels like you're using that issue to sell Cheetos. No, not true. We care about that issue because there is a guy in our office whose son is transgendered. Or wait, is he is he trans or adopted? He's adopted. That's right, because we don't know anyone trans. And that is the problem. You know, we have one more pitch, if there's time. By all means. We open on real people. No actors, no makeup, no lines, no lights, no props, no costumes, no camera, no Cheetos. Hard cut. Cheetos. I'm, I, I can't, that's, that's incredible. Okay, okay, I, I think we get it now. Uh, we know just what you're looking for. Absolutely. We open on the Twin Towers. <laughs> no! no. <laughs> All right, that was really uh, up our alley, and it's the world that we live in with the insanity of uh, uh, that we have to touch on. It wouldn't be a Safina Society podcast if we didn't touch on that type of insanity. Uh, so let's do our t Twitter check and see what's going on here in, uh, <clears throat> in the world. Ahmadiyya saying every mosque should be monitored. Really? Okay. They know that this also damages themselves too, right? Uh, they will be hammered by the state for going against British values when they espouse their socially conservative views on LGBT, etc. So that's from Marmuza, who uh, is telling us here that the Ahmadiyya... Now, the Ahmadiyya is basically one guy, one annoying guy, um, uh, who's gotten a lot of attention just for going on popular um, Muslim you know, uh, sites, like or going on uh, John and the Brown site, or going on to uh, Hamza Yusuf stuff, and basically trying to get in, right on their uh, pages, on the popularity of their pages, and it's the oldest trick in the book. If no one's paying attention to you, go after someone, associate yourself with someone who's got more uh, following than you, so all of their followers will then go to you and look at your stuff, and that's how you get attention. It's the oldest trick in the book. And these, Ahmed, to me, there's no such thing as Ahmadiyya. It's Qadiyanis. Ahmadiyya is uh, uh, a good thing. That would be a great thing. It's like Wahhabis. There shouldn't, Wahhabi is a beautiful thing. It's Allah's name, right? Uh, it's Najdis. 
the Nejd was cursed by the Prophet So uh, if you're talking, we're going to talk about them. Talk about say say the right word. There's no such thing as Ahmadiyya. It's Qadianis, and and how these people are getting any attention is just from this one guy uh, who keeps going onto people's pages. And to me, the biggest non-issue. A debate that will never basically uh, catch on anything is this issue with the Qadianis and trying to get themselves uh, accepted. And the last thing I heard of is Sunni supremacism. I want to know, isn't every religion supremacist? Doesn't every religion believe itself to be superior in some way, shape, and form? Or else, why did you join that religion? Right? If it's not the truth, whereas everything else is false, then why did you join it? What's the point of joining one truth versus other truths? Okay, And you're going to tell me now that nation-statehood doesn't have supremacy to it? Are you going to tell me that a soldier in Afghanistan doesn't believe that Americans are superior to Afghans? Are you going to tell me that he doesn't believe that his country is superior to Afghanistan? But at least in the supremacy of a Muslim, okay, if we're even going to go that route. But, and we do have this idea. The supremacy of a Muslim that he believes about himself is not about himself. It's about his Islam. And that if that same person were to leave Islam, all right, then he would lose it. And likewise, at this supremacy that's related to Islam, at least it's something that is your choice. Right? It's something of your doing. The supremacy of ethnicity, race, okay, gender, uh, nationality, all these things, birthplace. These are all things out of your control. They have no value. They're pointless, right? They're completely random. Not pointless, you can be proud of it, but it's completely random. So this concept, this idea that uh, the supremacy of Islam, yes, the Muslim, even in the Sharia, in the law, uh, the law is not equal. The one who has accepted God and his prophet, his, the laws pertaining to him are different than the one who hasn't. Just as citizenship, the Muslim who, or the, uh, in America, the one who has citizenship is not like someone who doesn't have citizenship. And being so, Islam is not, uh, like anything else, has parameters. You can't be, you're not a Muslim just because you feel like identifying as a Muslim. Just like you're not American just because you feel like identifying as American. An Afghani cannot come, an Iraqi cannot come, a Mexican can't come to the border and come say, well, where's your paperwork, sir? I don't have any paperwork, but I identify as an American. It doesn't work like that. So if you hear in a worldly thing, which is right in front of our eyes, which we all recognize would be an absurdity, Okay, you don't give citizenship out just because someone identifies from himself as an American, right or wrong. And what's harder, to enter into Islam or to enter into, to become a citizen of a country? Because a citizen of a country is like a 10-year process in some cases. People who have H-1 visas who are working, I know a guy, I've known him for 10 years, he's been trying to get his paperwork, right? Just to get a green card, forget citizenship. Right? A green card. And the, the one who is a citizen, and the one who is an H-1 visa, and the one who is a visitor's visa, and the one who is whatever type of visa there's, there are out there, and the one who is an illegal alien, are there all rights are all different. They have a, there's a difference between the rights that they have. Likewise in the Sharia, right? in the law, in the sacred law, when you're a Muslim, your rights are different. Right? You have different rights. So people who discuss these things and they get complexes and they start getting worried about the uh, uh, human rights campaigns and these ideas, okay, you have to look at the world that you live in and you realize the same principles are being applied but based on different standards. Okay? They're based on different standards. And which standard is more fair? Random things such as where you're born or where your uh, uh, where your parents are from, or something that is a choice.
All right, let's see what this is. All right, CNN reports women converting to Islam. All right, let's read that. Let's let's take a listen. Well, many people turned to religion to help them cope in the days after the 9-11 attacks, and some even chose new faiths, including Islam. That may be no surprise, since a quarter of the estimated 6 million Muslims in the United States are converts. Delia Gallagher looks at two people who chose that path. Alison Poole says this phrase three times in Arabic, and then in English. Three times, why? And I bear witness that Muhammad is the messenger of God. And her conversion ceremony is complete. She's now a Muslim. Moments later, she'll marry Sammy and become Allison El Gamal. Oh my gosh. Allison, I know this guy. Southern Baptist in North what in the world? Says faith, not marriage, made her want. To That's crazy. A I think for a long time, I worked with this guy. Looking for something. I've, there, there's been like a piece missing. Oh, Always one little thing that maybe wasn't right. At a ceremony marking the Muslim holy month of Ramadan, All right, she explained enough. why Islam appeals to her. Actually, let's continue. I think because it's much more about peace. I'm praying five times a day. It's kind of hard to go out and say bad things or do bad things when you're praying five times a day. You have to believe. The imam who married Allison says he's seen more American converts recently in part because of the prominence of Islam in the news. It may sound paradoxical. All right, well, uh, that was pretty interesting because I actually know the guy who ended up in the video. I worked with him in New York City. But uh, that brings me to the point that we have the ConvertCon coming up April 15th, and we have groups coming around. Uh, we got groups coming from uh, Virginia. We might have a group coming from the South. So um, ConvertCon is April 15th, Cook College, uh, Rutgers University. Uh, and we're going to have Sheikh Yahya, uh, Sheikh Amin, and we're going to have Isha Prime uh, as the speakers, and we're going to have a, uh, uh, some uh, breakout sessions. So it's going to be good. If you're in the area, uh, it's worth driving up to. If you're, if you're in England, Australia, yeah, we'll stream it. We'll probably stream it. No guarantees, but we want to stream it. Uh, but if you're, and if you're f too far away, but if you're in the area, Anywhere near the tri-state area, check it out. It's everything's on the Sisyphenasociety.org uh, website. All right, let's see what else here is going on. Al Khurasan, I think it's safe to call Ahmadis Islamophobes, considering they're one not Muslim, two accuse Orthodox Muslim of extremism, three employ propaganda tactics to further their agenda at the expense of Orthodox Muslims. All right, I'm going to tell him. Listen. No such thing as Ahmadis, Qadianis. Why soil the name of the Prophet with these folks? I mean, these people are managing to get themselves a lot of attention, which again is just the cheap tactic of... Um, of that guy, that one dude who keeps showing up on everyone's uh, feed. All right, I don't know how I got this. The millionaire mindset that must be um, paid or something because I'm not a I don't subscribe to this. But he says here, 
whatever we believe in becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Really? Okay. Tell that to the thousands of people out there, the millions of people who've, who've believed that they could get rich and failed. All right, nothing here. So let's go to Daniel's page and see what's going on there. If a, stu if a tombstone reads, a man bested by his desires, let it also read, he fought them till the bitter end. All right, nice. The dua at Tahajjud is like an arrow that does not miss its target. How to become a champion of Israel. Number one, cut off your peace. Two, slather on makeup. Three, endorse a genocidal apartheid state. Now that I think of it, I can't think of a better symbol for Israel. Caitlyn Jenner to be awarded champion of Israel and LGBTQ rights. Oh my gosh, please. Uh, if you had, you know, eaten something that you need to vomit, non-halal food, you could just, you know, click that article and you can go vomit. All right, nothing else going on here, so let's take a quick break. This is something pretty odd. Uh, someone just sent um, my direction, and this is basically a, uh, I guess, a type of show on the BBC where they take people and they call their parents and they record the call. And I'm sure that this is not fully staged, but I'm sure that they obviously they know they're being recorded. But it looks a bit genuine. So let's let's watch. This is about a looks like an Eastern European woman. Uh, and her daughter converted to Islam. So let's see what's what's going on here. Me following Islam is not me going away from my family. As a converted Muslim, it's going to make your life very difficult. You brought me up in a certain way, and there are so many things I take away from that, and I haven't changed as a person. But I do apply certain values in my life because I think it's very important. I know that you are a good person. I know you, you have certain values in your life, but uh, at the same time, you have converted into a culture which is very odd to us. You don't have to be Muslim to, to live this way you regard as a, as a perfect way. You can do the same things without covering head because nobody is really looking at your hair as a, as a desire to have you. But does it really make me less of a daughter if I don't no. drink wine with you or no, I don't go to the theater with you but we can do anything else together? 
and you're going to bring up a child, it's not going to happen. Uh, I have to pause here and say, so I, I think it's really tough for, uh, especially older parents whose children uh, become Muslim. I just can't imagine how difficult it is. But uh, a lot of rahmah and a lot of dua is needed. So uh, we have a lot of these situations where especially parents are religious in another religion and their kids become Muslim. Uh, it's extremely difficult. Life, I, I presume. But that's exactly why I want to protect her from, you know, all these things out there that, you know, I experienced. I partied, I, I wore mini skirts, I, I did all these things that seem like, you know, uh, having fun or uh, seem to be the pleasures of life, but actually you end up being miserable. If you keep her under the closure, it's not going to be very good for her to improve your character. You have to experience something. You have to see the world. You Make mistakes. Not, not, yeah. not necessarily the bad mistakes, extreme mistakes, but uh, live a normal way of life. You cannot keep her undercover. At the end of the day, every person will make their own choices and um, we just hope for the best. And, and that's what I will do with her. I hope you will find happiness. <laughs> um, and I love you very much. That's I really do. Okay. I love you very much. <laughs> All right, the mom is really in tears here. It's really uh, uh, a tough thing to watch. But, uh, well, some people, to be honest with you, the perspective that we have to look at is some people don't realize that uh, their worst fear is uh, what's going to bring them happiness and their uh, biggest desire is what's going to bring them misery. And one of the best examples of that is Nuruddin Zenki. And I wrote a little uh, piece about him last week. Nuruddin Zenki uh, wanted... Salahuddin to go, he wanted Salahuddin badly to go to Egypt and uh, Salahuddin really didn't want to go to Egypt and if they had known the future uh, they would have realized that Nuruddin, what he wanted was something that was going to lead to the end of his reign and the end of his rule as he was to die and uh, the Zenki family would, be, would not rule thereafter. And Salah al-Din, if he had known where he was going, he was going to Egypt where he would end up becoming the Sultan of Egypt in under a year. And when he became the Sultan of Egypt, uh, several, a couple years later, uh, Nur al-Din died and he became the Sultan of Syria as well. So sometimes you like a thing and it's bad for you. Sometimes you hate a thing and it's good for you. And sometimes the only way to get through uh, these sentiments uh, with individuals who are really hesitant and it's not like you want to be mean and jam something down their throat but you have to believe deep down that this is the right thing this is the best thing especially some the fundamentals of the Dean when it comes to lesser things such as the cultural elements um, you know those things we have to be really flexible that's not really what we're talking about but the fundamentals of Islam for people are going to produce a better life, removing intoxication, removing issues regarding gender and, uh, and, and children out of zina or men problems and women problems, removing those. That's right there, 75% of your problems. The debts through interest is a huge problem that you're eliminating right there. By three rulings, you have eliminated 75 to 90% of people's problems. Intoxication, men and women problems, and then debts. So just by eliminating these things right there, you've eliminated a humongous chunk of the problems that most people are having. Add to that now that all that Islam brings for people, uh, bringing them together in the masajid, which is a thir the third space that many people don't have. You have home, work, and where else? The bar, the mall. What, what is that third space, right? You have your masjid. And inside that masjid, 
be it Ramadan, be it Jummah, being just a random Isha at night, it brings people together in a way, uh, let alone classes, brings people together. Not just, it's not just about bringing them together, it's bringing them together on a foundation, on a foundation of what we believe is real, what we believe is true, and the, the ultimate purpose of life, and the basic morals of how we live. And this is one of the things that in Europe that I've seen that Islam is one of the reasons that people, people are coming into Islam is the idea of constantly coming together and bringing meaning to life and bringing company because modern, the modern person is extremely lonely. These things are, have proven over time, they've proven over time to really fill, remove uh, the major issues and problems people have and fulfill and bring together the two biggest things that make a person uh, uh, make a life happy, which is meaning and company. Meaning and company, and that company needs to share that same meaning. So, these are the things that I think over time an individual will see uh, makes a huge difference. And um, you know, my heart goes out to those types of uh, parents who, um, you know, it's a big shock. Right, and it's a big shock, and you're not always dealing with intellectuals who are going to read and know the nuance of things. They just see what's on TV, and they 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 see that their kids are going down that route. But what we could say is sometimes you hate a thing, and it is good for you. It's gonna show. And Sheikh Yahya talked about his grandfather in a public talk, and he said that his grandfather actually really uh, uh, was impressed with Yahya for keeping up some basic things that in the 50s, 60s, and, 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 and in his era were morals that are now gone, right? That are now gone, but he's like happy to see that, uh, you know, uh, his grandson is keeping that stuff up and it's, it's only Islam that's caused him to bring these things up. So, alhamdulillah, we wandered around a little bit. We looked at youth and the idea of bringing their bodies into the building and taking it slow and the intention in the beginning doesn't have to be some idealistic intention. And we brought up the subject of love and how critical it is to uh, constantly bring up this idea. And then we roamed around a little bit on the web. So overall, it was a nice uh, hour or two that we spent together. Jazakumullah khairan. And we'll see you next week. Assalamu alaikum.
Oh.